Excuse me, but I didn't want to say goodbye, as you are obviously going to be very busy for some time. He's right there. Just in case you still have ideas about your master plan, I have taken precautions to stop your time meddling. <laughs> Look at his stopper mark for. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through Doctor Who from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Having just finished up the last episode of Hartnell Season 2, we're now going to talk more about Season 2 all over again. I'm your host, and I categorically deny the accusation that this is a cheap clip show episode done because we're out of budget at the end of the season. My co-host is Guy, who enjoys sitting around retelling the stories that happened to him in the last year with people who are also there. Yeah. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And joining us to discuss Season 2 is the famed Doctor Who fan and scholar Toby Haydoke. Hello, Toby. Hello. Now, do British shows—now, I know British shows have bottle episodes, right, where you use the minimum amount of sets and everything. But do British shows, or did they ever have what American shows used to, which was literally when they ran out of money at the end of the season, the characters would sit around the table and talk about what had happened during the season— and then they would replay clips from those shows. Yeah, no, not as, I mean, there's somebody who knows more than I will write in and go, no, it happened with the Grove family here. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I remember sort of getting introduced to the, uh, the, the, the concept of such a thing via starting to watch American television. And it's funny, it, it's, it seems to us over here as a sort of, yes, a sort of rather quaint, quaint thing that's specific <laughs> to you guys. Um, but I, you know, I, I, there's so much about American television we didn't quite understand until a lot later so for example it you know i didn't realize that you know it, you didn't watch a season all in one go it sort of you know stopped off for a bit uh and and and, and had gaps or repeats or whatever uh, and, and then came back and all of that sort of business so we, we thought mm. i thought a season went all the way through you know so you're you're, you're just the landscape of your sort of uh televisual habits is is slightly different so i don't think i can't think of anything that has had a bottle episode, although some, I'm sure somebody will think of an example, but it's not, uh, no, it's not as common as it is with, uh, with you guys. Yeah. Well, uh, I would argue the last 20 years in the U S have been the process of us moving towards the British model of, you know, discrete seasons, small number of episodes because of streaming and, and cable channels and all that, where you, where we couldn't really do it before. But to me, something like as time goes by, that could have never happened in the U.S. Even today could never happen where just every few years you do another six episode season. Mm. You know, I mean, that's amazing. And, I, and I'm glad that we're sort of getting getting more towards that where it's more like reading a book than just, you know, well, as Doctor Who was right. Well, we got to put out 24 or 32 episodes every year and we're just going to rush it. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so there is something to be said for sort of going, well, let's, let's make the stories we want to tell rather than we have to fill a certain amount of hours. That's, that's never going to be a recipe for c consistent success, is it? Oh, if you're, yeah. if you're, you're having to produce something for the sake of it, as I think the landscape of television of the past 40 years has shown us. Yep. <laughs> so let's talk season two. Well, so, uh, I don't know if you can cast your mind back guy, uh, as, as the new guy, 
What were you feeling at the end of season one? You said it was something you would keep watching on your own. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I, I definitely, uh, there was a lot about season one that I enjoyed. I liked the Aztecs a lot. Uh, the Reign of Terror was good. I enjoyed The Edge of Destruction. I know you weren't too fond of it, but I thought it was... <laughs> I th- part of that, though, was on the first watching, I didn't know what was going to happen. So there was... The, I, I think going back and watching it again, there'd be a whole lot less of the suspense that appealed to me in the first place. But, yeah, overall, it was it was a fun season, and uh, the cast helped a lot, I think. You know, William Hartnell just... Uh, and there's something about him I get a kick out of. Then uh, the companions were good too. So uh, there were a lot of things that worked together uh, to favorably impress me. <laughs> and I felt like by the end of season one, you you were sort of a veteran Doctor Who watcher because I remember during this season we were talking. I'd be like, "Oh, what was that story?" And you're like, "The Sensorites." And I'm like, okay, <laughs> if you can call out the Sensorites, you are now a Doctor <laughs> Who veteran. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so. Let's uh, jump into season two here and just kind of, you know, remember, go back through, see what we did and get Toby's input and, and such. So we, we start out with Planet of Giants, which wasn't supposed to be the first episode. It was supposed to be the Dalek invasion of Earth, but that's just, but it was actually Planet of Giants was supposed to be the premiere episode of season one, right? Yeah. There's a long gestation with Planet of Giants. I mean, the pretty much the first story idea that they pitch within within the sort of eternal shenanigans that go on is Doctor Who and the minuscules. And it's, yes, it's the idea that, you know, we have a we have past stories, future stories, and sideways stories. And the sideways stories were about science. Uh, and their big science idea was, well, what happens if... And yeah, for, for a point, it was going to be the first adventure, not the, not the cave people stuff, was that having encountered Doctor Who, that the school teachers would find themselves back in then in Ian's lab in his science department, um, or shrunk, and that would be their their mm. first adventure. And then various writers fell through, and things didn't happen. But this idea of the minuscules or them being shrunk was something they were so desperate to do. It persevered, persevered, and then they finally did it. And huh. I think that thing they wanted to they bothered. But, uh, <laughs> well. I have to say, it's not something I would voluntarily rewatch. But I do respect the ambition. I mean, they were really trying to do something, and they were really trying to pull out all the stops on the special effects and and everything. And it it doesn't really work, but you know. <laughs> but I respect that. Yeah, there was there was a lot I liked about it. I think the the glaring plot hole for me was that this doctor had developed this pesticide to the point where he thought it was ready for market, and he never bothered to test if it would kill anything aside from <laughs> insects <laughs> yeah there's a flaw that i mean it's, it's I, I i was sort of mean about it and the other thing is worth saying is that this is still really part of season one because this mm. planet of giants and, and dalek invasion of earth was still part of the first production block so that's that you know it's, it's still part of the first year's worth of episodes they'd have loved to have started with dalek invasion of earth because of course but susan leaves at the end of it so they were stuck with the order that they had so it's a very odd way to begin doctor who's second year of course, it was really supposed to be the penultimate story of season one. I think the hero of this story is Raymond Cusick, mm-hmm. the designer. That not just the giant uh, uh, creatures, um, the giants. I mean, even even the the sort of normal exterior set that they have of the garden. Mm-hmm. Two actors talk about the the, the science with you know that is a, is a false back end of a house. You know, with a with a, mm-hmm. a, a, a I think a false perspective of the top end. It's a really ambitious 
piece mm-hmm. of design, and it's uh, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, and, the, and the giant fly that they have is is fantastic. But I don't know how much because. Guy, is this your first time through all of this? Uh, yes, yeah. Until uh, until this podcast, I had—I don't think I'd ever seen an episode of Doctor Who. So, do you know what's unique about this particular story? Do you, there, there are this is that the the last three party you will see for another sort of 20, <laughs> 20, 23 years of Doctor Who. Of course, it's supposed to be a three-parter, right? <laughs> yeah, there's, did you, yeah, I don't know if you know, new guy, that, that this was uh, this was actually not only written, it was, I mean, this is unprecedented. It was made as a four-parter. And then they watched hmm. the last two episodes and decided that even by the standards of 60s black and white Doctor Who, it was quite slow. Huh. And so they did, a, a, and again, as, as a maneuver, just editing was, a, was an expensive thing to do. But they, they chucked half the episode away. They combined episodes three and four into one in order hmm. to, uh, to up the pace a little bit. Hello. So the secret here, right, Toby, is you were part of the reconstruction of that material. Mm. Didn't, didn't you play the bad guy, Forrester? Or... I did. Yeah. I played Forrester, Alan Tilburn's part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's on the, that's on the DVD. And my, my ex-wife, Catherine, I think did an excellent job as, uh, as Barbara. She's superb. Huh. But yes, it's, uh, it's. And, and that has repercussions for the rest of the series because it means that they've got a, a sort of gap in the schedule mm. that they've actually bought and paid for. So it, it has a sort of, it has a, a knock-on effect, but it's highly unusual. But I mean, I, th- I think even with the stuff cut out, it is, it is not the, uh, it's not the zippiest uh, of, of tales. Well, so what, think- what, is, uh, what is your feeling, especially having intimately worked with the missing material, would you rather that it was the full story or do you think they were right to cut it down? I think the, the problem the story has is that the sort of crime of the week story is quite un-Doctor Who. It's, uh, it's funny, I've been watching a bit of um, early Peter Davison recently. The, the story is written by Terence Studley for To Doomsday and Black Orchid. And you look at it, you go, it's like this guy hasn't watched Doctor Who. And... Planet of Giants is a bit like that, even though Louis Marx comes back later and writes some, some John Povey and Tom Baker stuff. It's, it's, it's like he doesn't really know what the show is. And the, and the stuff on Earth in the house with the, with the DN6 and all of that is, is a rather odd sort of little story where it's all solved by this funny woman at the telephone exchange <laughs> going, I, I don't think that sounds like Mr. Forrest. <laughs> well, no, I could have used more of her, so it was too bad she got cut out, a, yeah. It's because he's put a handkerchief over the phone, <laughs> which, uh, which, uh, is, is parodied brilliantly, um, in Police Squad, uh, or the Naked Gun. <laughs> I think it's in Police Squad, isn't it? Uh, even though that, that story would be known to the makers of that. Uh, but uh, it's a trope, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah. uh, I, I don't think it loses anything. I think it, that, that side of the story is a bit poor. I always feel sorry, sorry for any actor who has their part chopped right, down. And, right. uh, oh, and yeah. I think they would have had a lot more to do, but it's, it's the, uh, the the one thing I would say about the detective story uh, is that uh, t- tackling the story about insecticide and environmental damage caused by us trying to control crops and all of that sort of thing is actually a, a, a hugely prescient and, and you know very thoughtful thing to do with the Doc Two format for this early in the show. Yeah, so I, I can't mo- fault yeah. its ambition. They would do a lot more of that later, right? Well, what do you think about this? Because one thing I thought was very disturbing about the material that was cut out is the cat dies and is like in the Ooh. sink or something. And especially for a kid's show, I just, and, and, you know, there people really, really have a hard time 
seeing pets die. There's even a website called Does the Dog Die? So you can, <laughs> if you're going to go see a movie or something, there are people who won't watch the movie or TV show if a pet is killed in it. Now, I don't know where British sensibilities were at the time. Do you think that's a controversial thing? Or? Well, I do that once. I, yeah, it, it is. It's funny, isn't it, how we could see any amount of dead worms, but uh, a dead <laughs> yeah, cat, because cats, <laughs> because we domesticate them. And I mean, and I don't think you know until I have a dog now. I've never had a dog before. Huh. So I'm much more sensitive to, you know, where people put on Facebook, you know, our, our dog died today. It breaks your yeah. heart. Oh, so I, I think it is quite strong stuff, certainly, to, to kill a cat. <laughs> um, and, and, and indeed, you know, sometimes that would, that would probably be more alarming than some of the human deaths <laughs> right, we see a doctor. Right, that's, that says a lot about us as well, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like the people who leave all their money to their cat, never mind the starving children. Right. You know. <laughs> uh, Guy has a dog who is a frequent participant in our podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he likes to look it. out the window and bark at stuff a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Bernard does that line, does that as well. He watches the world go by. <laughs> All right, so now we move on to some uh, story that means a lot to me, and it's the Dalek invasion of Earth. And, and the reason it's important to me is that it was when I saw this that I knew I wanted to watch all of classic Doctor Who. I just thought this story rocked. And now, <laughs> here's the funny thing about our podcast. I pulled every psychological trick I could to drag Guy over the line to get him to like this. But in the end, he just wouldn't go there. <laughs> so what was your problem, Guy? Do you remember? <laughs> I, uh, I, I liked it overall. I mean, it, it just, um, it wasn't one of my favorites, but, uh, but I, I think I liked it all right. Well, um, and of course, of course, the way it ends up with, uh, with Susan leaving, that really, uh, annoyed me. I mean. When but, we uh, talked, you couldn't get over the actual Dalek plan to drive the planet around the universe. Yeah, <laughs> that was, uh, that seemed a little, a little far-fetched to me, you know, just turn the earth into a hot rod and, you know, go tooling around the galaxy. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that, uh, yeah. And plus, the, I mean, I know the Daleks are the most popular enemy, uh, from Doctor Who, but I, I have a feeling that if I were to picks a standout enemy who would be like the recurring enemy through season after season. It might not have been the Daleks. It might be an enemy I haven't even seen yet, but I'm not sure if it would have been the Daleks. Cause, cause they're just, you know, it, there's just a lot of monotones. <laughs> Exterminate. <laughs> they do have some clever moments too, though. So I'm not, I'm not totally uh, disparaging mm -hmm. the Daleks. I'm just saying other villains I might have preferred better. I think for me, what blew me away with this story was, first of all, in the very beginning, that poster is just amazing that says, you know, do not throw bodies in the yeah. water. And that, mm, yeah. that's amazing because it tells you in one line so much about the time you're in and what's happening. Right. Mm, and it's yeah. so stark. It's just so, so that and them running through you know, Trafalgar Square and everything and, and the, the percussion music. I mean, that all just, that's all I can see. And, you know, <laughs> and I don't pay too much attention, honestly, to the Dalek part of it. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you come down on this one, Toby? Uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm trying to stop worrying and learning to love the Dalek invasion of Earth because for, for many years, it was a story I was very cross with. Wow. Um, but we all go through phases. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and I think 
There's a number of things with that. Is that one? It's it's an acknowledged classic. There's a part of me that likes to be mm. uh, kicking against straight. But but there's also my first experience of this was of the the movie version, mm. which mm. looks mm. like a movie. You know what the movie can pull off, and the TV version doesn't. It is in stark contrast to actually something else mm. rather than one's imagination. You have you have two versions to compare. And the third thing was it's it spent me a lot of time to appreciate the work of the director Richard Martin. I have to say, is a very, very lovely mm-hmm. man, intelligent and erudite and charming, sort of ex- explainer of what their ambition was back in the day. But I think his ambition, certainly in the studio, is perhaps often at odds with his capabilities. And I think he makes some odd choices often. And it means that it, a, a lot of the execution is quite clunky. And especially as on paper, this is, I think, what certainly I, I desperately wanted as a as a kid, it is very much a, and I'm going to use a phrase that's probably going out of fashion now, but it, it does, does, um, encapsulate a particular type of adventure. It's a sort of boy's own story, mm. you know, in that it, it, it has a lot of its iconography from, from World War II stories, you know, it, it has the resistance who could be mm-hmm. anything, you know, that the, there are elements yeah. of war stories. So the resistance, like the French mm-hmm. resistance, the women in the wood are the sort of collaborators, traitors, right. where you've got that sort of paranoia lurking, but you've also got the fact that the, the heroes are the underdogs and they're having to cobble together their weapons and, uh, you know, atta- attack the baddies in ways that are sort of un- underground and underhand and improvised and all of that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it has all of those elements of a sort of World War II occupation type of story that were, of course, of a particular story type that was being told at the time, quite adult entertainment. So that gives it a, that's what Terry Nation is very good at, is making kids' drama seem adult to kids uh-huh. because people have Germanic names or because it has, it has these certain tropes that it uses. So I think it's very clever in, in that way. But as you say, the science is big <laughs> and the execution are sometimes wanting. I actually think the film work is very good. Richard Martin does some really good stuff on, on location. Hmm. Um, but I think, I think the studio execution is often found hmm. wanting. Well, hmm. And this brings up something I, I did want to ask you about. So I'm glad, which is that. I know fandom sort of has this hatred of Richard Martin. And I, I just think of the episode, the stories he did, and they tend to be stories that I liked. And I, and I just, I don't have that feeling, even though I understand there's some awkwardness and sometimes some maybe on the nose directing choices. Well, and of course the, the point is he was given the stories that were harped. Hmm. We have to acknowledge that, that if, if he comes up wanting, because he doesn't quite pull off the Dalek invasion of earth the wet planet, the chase is that he's got, he's being asked to pull off some quite huge. Uh, actually, I forgot he'd done the wet planet. Do that it. might take me down. But, <laughs> but, but to, to pull off the, the wet planet or the chase, I would say is harder to pull off than say the space museum right. where all you're having to mm. wrangle is, you know, actors on a, on a set. Right. I mean, with, to make that interesting is a different thing, but I'm talking about the technical right. challenges. You know, mm. he was, he was entrusted with right. the hardest stories. Well, yeah. And to pull he off. tended to get landed with the Terry Nation stories that were impossible to film, right? We're going to do 12 locations yeah. and, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Different set every week, yeah. you know, all of, all of that business. Um, so it's, it's very easy now to look back and sort of go, oh, well, he wasn't quite up to scratch, but, uh, you know, he was being asked to do difficult things. And we forget how young these people were. I'm, yeah. I've got, I'm supposed to be phoning Richard Martin tomorrow, wow. by the way. Oh, okay. uh, about well, so that's <laughs> Give him my regards. He's, Tell him I like he's him. A, he, <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a lovely fellow. Uh, but he, um, 
during the making of the Daleks, he celebrates his 29th birthday. Wow. So yeah. he's what he's he, so, and actually the Dalek invasion of Earth is, is less than a year later because it's broadcast, isn't it? On, on, I think the last episode is broadcast on Boxing Day, 1964. So mm. it was broadcast before he, the director was 30 years old, which is extraordinary when you think about it, mm. uh, uh, of how young some of these people making Doctor right. were. Right. Mm. Do you, I, I don't know if you have any knowledge of this. I mean, someone like him, like you say, and, and I watched him on some of the extras and he seems like a really good guy. Has he been stung by the kind of fan? Oh, I don't think he knows. Yeah. I don't think he, he you know, I don't think he reads any of And and that's, I think that's only stuff in sort of, you know, deep down fan writing. I don't think it's there. You know, if you look at all the documentaries on the DVDs and stuff, I think they go into a level of detail that is right for, for what they do, which is at the end of the day, those stories are still acknowledged as the, as the sort of important stories of those era. It's only when you go down to nitty gritty examinations that, mm -hmm. that yes, there seems to have become latterly a consensus that Richard Martin str struggles with some of the stuff. But I think, I think in terms of the whole Hartnell era, the stories that he directed are, you know, are very important ones and, and, and epic productions. And that's as far as that he's going, but I don't think he give a doubt. He's a lovely chap, Richard. He's very, uh, uh, you know, and he knows that he, he did what he was, and he has problems with Doctor Who, you know, he thinks, he thinks the whole approach to the show was, was slightly muddle-headed, hmm. uh, but he, he had his, his ambitions to make stuff as, as good and as, uh, as ambitious as it possibly could be. That's what he tried to do. But he, you know, he, I don't think he holds Doctor Who up as, as a, as a pinnacle of his, his hmm. career. It was where he was learning how to do his stuff. You know, hmm. He directed one television program before doctor that was it mm, wow mm. okay so then you know we come to obviously one of the most classic moments we have our first companion departure with susan and this you know at least to me amazing speech from the doctor now you know guy i'm never quite clear where you came down with susan because we made a lot of fun of course of all the screaming and everything all the things that caroline ford mm. you know left over but you were really not happy when she left. On the other hand, how did you feel about yeah. this whole thing? Oh well, I was I was very fond of Susan. I mean, it was fun to make make fun of her screaming and you know little little idiomatic uh, quirks and so forth. But uh, I really enjoyed the character. I thought uh, I wished that she had been given more to do, you know, a bigger role to play. There were some episodes where she was just almost written out entirely like i think the reign of terror they hardly used her at all if i remember <laughs> she was right. sick the whole time right <laughs> oh okay so that yeah that may no i don't mean the actress i mean the 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 character oh the character oh yeah yeah she was just uh in the the prison cell area but uh yeah i i really i really enjoyed her i thought when when she really had a moment that, that she could be just cheerful and enthusiastic i thought she really shown and at times like that and uh you know she got occasionally she got to do something clever or you know help everybody else out so i mean that was just i was sorry to see her go that's all so what did you <laughs> think about this speech do did, um, did this stand out for you i mean it was it it worked it, it didn't bring tears to my eyes one thing that occurred to me i actually went this morning and i was reading uh recaps on a on a fan wiki uh of all the episodes so i could be sure that i they were fresh in my mind one thing that stood out to me what had occurred to me was you know susan expressed her love for uh for david and so forth you know and sounded like she wanted to stick around 
But the doctor really was just kind of assuming that she actually wanted to stay. You know, maybe she was just trying to let him down lightly, and then she really wanted to get back in the TARDIS. But I don't know. It's a it's a far fetched theory. But if that what were the case, then the doctor actually would have done a kind of a dastardly deed by abandoning her and with somebody she didn't actually want to be with. I don't well, know. You could, I mean, you could argue that he knew he she would never leave him. And that at some point she had to move on. And so he was making that happen. Right. I mean, where do you come down on all that? Toby? Well, I mean, it's, it's the first in a, in a long list of Dr. Who romances that where Dr. Who does many things brilliantly, but I, I would argue it doesn't do romance particularly <laughs> a lot of the time. Uh, and that's uh, particularly hard when it's a romance that it is, that has been conceived to prompt the exit of a much loved character. I think they do their best. I mean, they do have a scene where they hit each other with a fish, don't they? Yeah. That's about as romantic <laughs> and, and as they get on top of each gets. other. It's actually yeah. a little bit yeah, explicit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fish wrangling by the campfire, <laughs> uh, which is more than Sun gets. It's more than Leela gets yeah, to do yeah. later. Uh, uh, but, or Dodo, uh, for God's sake. Uh, indeed, poor old Dodo, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it all happens off screen. She could be doing anything with a fish. Dodo. Uh, <laughs> I think the actual scene itself is very nicely done. That speech for a certain generation of fans, my generation, who were too young to have seen it at the time, but also too young to get access to repeats, uh, is that we knew that speech first from the beginning of The Five Doctors. So I could never quite uh, assess it within context in a way, because it has all of those mm-hmm. other sort of memories that it that it provokes. But I, I do think it's it's very nicely done. I think Susan's brilliant. I think, you know, you're right in, in that... Um, I was I was thinking of the I was watching the Edge of Destruction recently, and uh, you know it's another air, it's another example of where she does the alien acting, mm-hmm. and I think Caroline Ford does particularly well. That's like misty eyed, and she's got a she's got a fairly distinctive diction as well. So when when you know when she's acting, the sort of strangeness it lends itself to her her sort of slightly pitched way of talking, uh, and she does that very well in the first story. She does that brilliantly in the Edge of Destruction. She has moments in the Sensorites, but. The rest of the time, she has to be the kid that gets into trouble. And I think that's a shame for her because I think she, she, uh, promised a lot more. Oh, and I would say to Guy about the Daleks, uh, and their voices and getting worried. The Daleks voices in this story are, I would say the worst they will ever be because they're, they're not that far away from being human voices here. I, I think, I, I think you will start to learn to. Be pleased that the Daleks are back as as time goes on. Okay, um, I d- they don't they don't get the voices quite right with this. Huh. Uh, it's almost like their eye was on everything else. So where where do you fall on? Was the Doctor within his rights to decide for her that she was going to stay? Well, it's very. T- I think that's better drama. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? We c- we can't do a good joke about it. You know, yeah. Just means it could, it could wait to see the back of her or whatever. <laughs> but if, in terms of if you're writing a leaving scene, I think in terms of the way that they structure it within within the story, it's it's if she really wants to go, but is showing her loyalty to her grandfather by not going, and he has to do the sad thing that really hurts him of going. Well, I will do what is best for you, even though on the surface we might both think that we should just carry on doing what we've always done, which is being together. Well, that is unfair on you. I think that is really good drama. I mm-hmm. think that's good writing. I think that's trying to make an occasion of the companion departure. So the doctor doing the, the thing that hurts him for the right reasons, I think is excellent character drama. Oh, so yes. I, you know, I think that's a really good call. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of like the mama bird pushing the babies out of the nest. You know, they've got Absolutely. to learn to fly on their own. <laughs> Absolutely. So I had to ask, is that Bernard on your cup there, on <laughs> your mug? Uh, no, yep. I mean, he doesn't look unlike this, actually. And that's why we've got the cup. But uh, yes, that, that's, that's a bit what he looks the like. The guy on, on Patreon every week, um, Toby puts out a picture of his dog, you know, dressed up in some fashion or another. You know, oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay, so we move on to The Rescue, which is also interesting. The only two-episode? Is there any other two episode? I can't think of anything. Edge of Destruction, destruction uh, the year before. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm thinking uh, of that as a three episode. But I guess, yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. It's two. And, and then, then Davison, Peter Davison has three two artists. Oh, okay. I, oh, and Todd Bake, Todd Bake has the Sontaran Experiment. So. Okay. I have seen some, I've seen Tom Sontaran Experiment. I haven't seen most of the Peter Davidson, so I didn't know about that. Okay. Uh, yeah, um, he, he has he has a two-parter every year. Oh, uh, okay. Hmm. So we have a two-parter that was really just designed to introduce the new companion, Vicky. What you talked about in that episode, one of the things I appreciate about the actress is they they went so far as wanting to like dye her hair black to be like Susan, and she's like, I'm not Susan, you're not doing this. <laughs> so I thought that was a good sign, like, you know, she's she has some gumption there. We have a interesting bad guy, you know, Bennett slash Coquillion. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. What is it? I mean, it's a short story. I think the doctor comes off well in this and that he sort of figures things out pretty quickly and interestingly. We do have the unfortunate moment with Barbara. And I think it's really interesting because I actually think it is consistent. We, again, we talked about it in the episode where in Dalek Invasion of Earth, Barbara got to be a badass, right? And she's like driving a mm. truck through the Daleks mm. and she's doing yep. whatever she has to. And that doesn't serve her well here because she sees a monster, she grabs a gun, she shoots it, but it's actually a pet. Yeah, it was a sweet little... Yeah, never yeah. mind the cats. The death of Sandy the Sand Beast is <laughs> yeah. <to> a <laughs> And it has such a plaintive death veil as well. It's really oh, yeah. sad. <laughs> I, I did a podcast about this story, and I got I got pulled up very gently. Somebody pointed out because I said, you know, it's a it's a who done it with only one suspect. But actually, you don't really you don't actually know it's a who done it because you think the baddie is Coquillian. So uh, it, it's it's only with the benefit of I you know I came to this story already knowing what happened. In it. So oh, that sort yeah. of in, in that sense rendered it slightly redundant as a. Uh, purely as a story, but if 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 you sort of go into it sort of blind, I'm sure Guy will will tell us this. You know, you you don't know that, and that the story has different stakes. What I what I mm-hmm. would say about it is that one, Maureen O'Brien is brilliant. Two, again, Raymond Cusick, the set designer, is, is does. I, I love the fact that the spaceship is on an angle, all the sets are on an angle because it's broken mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. Uh, and it and it sort of matches the the, the models. I think that's a that's terrific. Uh, idea that helps with the shooting of it. Christopher Barry is a very good director, but also that is Bennett, he, and it's just a bloke with a beard. I think he could potentially be the biggest killer in the whole of the Doctor Who canon because he has killed the entire population of the planet Dido, <laughs> apart from those two people we see at the end, which is quite a ma- that's quite a lot of mass murder just to cover up your tracks for oh, yeah. the fact that you've uh, you've you've been up to no good. He kills. The bar two two men who've now got to live together on Dido for the rest of time. Uh, he he kills everybody just to cover his tracks. So that's he's, he's as as villains go. He's quite 
he's quite a bad guy. But I think oh, yeah. that confrontation Hartnell has with Ray Barrett at, at the end is uh, is a really good scene, and and uh, and he's on very good form, and, and they have quite a, a, a physical little scuffle. Right. Well, and one of the things yeah. I would call a doctor moment is when his back is turned and Coquillion comes in behind him at the end, and he knows exactly what's going on, knows who he is. He's in control of that situation, even though yeah. his back is to the bad guy. I think that's Ooh. a pretty good doctor moment. So, Guy, did you feel there was only one suspect? I don't, I, did you feel there was surprise to, you know, who Coquillion was? I think... I think I figured out that the the room had that the room that Bennett was staying in. I think I figured out at some point that there were multiple entrances to that. And once once I realized that, then that kind of you know I I sort of saw how the rest was going to shape up more or less. I think, uh, or maybe that's just maybe I'm giving myself credit in hindsight. Maybe I didn't <laughs> catch on to that at all. But that's how I remember it. <laughs> It's all really about introducing, um, Vicky and, uh, it's kind of a funny thing that will come back later here. They sort of promise her lots of adventure and, uh, at some point she, in the next story, she calls them on that. So, which is the Romans. I'll say right up front. I, I just have a lot of affection for this story. Mm -hmm. And of course our bad guy is Nero. We also have, again, we talked about in the episode, but I love the fact that there's been like a month. They've been in Rome for a month before the story starts. And I, I like it when TV shows play with time and it doesn't have to start five seconds after the last story. Right? Yeah. Cause a lot of the time, uh, at least in the episodes we've seen up to now, that's exactly what happens. You'll, you know, the TARDIS materializes somewhere new and they're off to the races. <laughs> but this one, they actually got a little breather, even though we didn't get to see most of it. I also thought it, mm -hmm. it, it does make it more believable that you've got people sort of living their lives, mm -hmm. um, which, as you say, because they're obliged to end each story with a cliffhanger, mm -hmm. it's, it's quite nice that they've been able to take stock and do what you would do if you were a time traveler and ended up in ancient Rome. You'd go, should we, should we enjoy, should we enjoy <laughs> the wine and the sun for a bit? You know? <laughs> yeah. And very convenient if you can find a villa where the owner is gone for months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I guess those did exist because, in fact, my understanding is that rich people did own villas, you know, outside of Rome and they would go there, you know, when they were not engaged in Rome or whatever. So it's possible. I think, uh, I think sometimes army officers would also be, you know, out in the field and things like that, but they'd have a nice house somewhere back home. Hmm. So, um, first, uh, did, did Cusick do this one? Cause I, it stands out for me. Yeah. Um, it stands out for me in terms of sets. I mean, just really wonderful sets and like the, the market. And, and again, we talked about it at the time, but this amazing shot where in the, the local market where two guys are walking on one side of the market and the camera is on the other side tracking them. And then they come together and it's like, this is very complicated. Also, mm. they had a lot of extras and it made it feel like this was a real place. Yeah, I, I mean Christopher Barry was a was a very good director. The the only time it comes up short, I think, is is a, a, a Roman gladiatorial <laughs> arena is <laughs> is beyond them, and it's sort of like he's having we had a lot of fun with private, that. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like he's having yeah. his own private uh, darts. It's, it's maybe they were watching in the arena and, and the gladiator, you know, and they they shoved shoved a few few yeah. notes in the gladiator's pants and said, "Let's go and have a private 
you come do a private yeah. sword fight for me out of the back. You know? I was actually <laughs> interpreting it that this was a small room for the emperor, and Guy kind of pointed out that no, this is supposed to be. And I'm like, no, I can't. It's not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Spartacus, Spartacus, it isn't. Um, <laughs> and but of course, was... the, the important development here is that it's is that the, the, it's 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 largely played for laughs, or whole sections of it yeah. are. Well, the um, humor, I think, comedic- is wonderful, and I, and yeah. I think it's a really welcome addition to the stories, right? Well, and, it's, and it starts to create what Doctor Who is, because I think Doctor Who has, has prospered so well because, it, because of its sense of humor. But, it, it, you know, it's, it's Dennis Spooner coming in with the Reign of Terror, where there's a few comedy characters, you know, in contrast to a very bloody period in history. And he sort of does it again here, where he's, I mean, they don't, Doctor Who doesn't get out-and-out comedy as... as as often, but you know, the Romans in, in places is a real at- attempt to do that. And it does just mean that Doctor Who's DNA has, you know, uh, some comedic stuff, stuff sprinkled amongst it, which, which I think is part of it's the reason for its longevity is that it yeah. has a sense of humor about itself and what it's doing. So mm-hmm. where do you come down on, you know, I have seen from some people we're both aware of criticism that you have the sequence of Nero chasing Barbara through the hallways. And, you know, this is classic sort of slapstick humor, but I have seen the criticism of, oh, this is basically making fun of rape. Well, um, we live in, <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Because obviously, yeah, if you want to break it down to its base elements, that's that's what it's doing. But it's also based in, a long tradition of a particular sort of sort of humor in the same sense that you know the death of Tigellinus the cupbearer which is one yeah, of the greatest yeah. <laughs> comic moments in the whole of Doctor is making a joke about death but it's not really making a joke about death you know only only if you struggle to sort of separate truth and fiction and uh, that that seems to be i mean i i i know we live in in times now where fictional storytelling has to be a bit more responsible and aware that people watching may be triggered by stuff and i think that's understandable and i think that's fair enough but um the intent uh and the depiction of it is so silly that it's 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 uh, you know i don't particularly see it as 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 harmful yeah but i i have i am respectful of people sure. that that want more responsibility in their their storytelling but uh I, I think you know, right. So I come down basically the same place. I believe this is part of a tradition. We had this cartoon Scooby Doo, right? And they would do this all the time, where they were running between the the different rooms, chasing each other, and all that. And to me, that's what yeah. it's really about. It's just that kind of comedic thing. Again, I, you know, I, yeah. I think you have to meet fiction on its own terms. I think now there's, we get a lot of mileage about sort of calling out our creatives for what the undercurrent of what they're trying to do is what the people making Doctor Who were trying to do in the 1960s was make entertaining television. So to, to sort of call them to account, even, even, you know, with, within a sort of intellectual exercise for what could be harmful repercussions of that, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure is particularly helpful. And I slightly mistrust the zeal behind it mm. as well. Mm. You know, I, I tend to assume that most people undertaking a creative endeavor are secretly trying to be awful. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, and also, I mean, this but, whole this whole story is a parody of the movies that were coming out at the time, right? There were lots and lots yeah. of movies about this time period, and they 
and lots of different people who'd played Nero and et cetera. So all these decisions are kind of a reaction to just what was in the culture. Yeah. At the time. Yeah, it's an echo, a, a parody of, of popular culture at the time. Um, and it's not trying to say or do anything apart from, it's a fart, you know, apart yeah. from be, be, you know, echo, you know, stage farts really where people chase each other and miss each other and all of that. Now, one thing we did talk about in this was I felt in terms of directing, they did not quite clearly communicate that they were always missing each other. So it was a bit of a surprise at the end when they're, when it turns out they never saw each other because we know they've been in the same room, you know, et cetera. And I just felt like, okay, that wasn't quite communicated. I mean, it's funny, but it would have been funnier if it had been clear to us throughout that they were never seeing each other and had no idea that right. they were all in the same place. And I think, right. I, I think it was, I don't think they'd left it ambiguous, but just if you're watching and you're caught up in the story, it's easy to miss. I think, you know, your mind sort of subconsciously mm. makes that connection that they were all together. And, you know, if you were looking for that explicitly, you could see, no, they never did actually meet up. But, so, I mean, yeah, it, from a, it, it could have made more, it could have been made more explicit, I think. But, you know, it's, it's a minor quibble all in all. And we have a lovely performance from uh, uh, Derek Francis as Nero. Yep. Who has a great deal of fun. Yeah, I, uh, I think he, he's, he's definitely in my top three list of the villains for this season. Possibly <laughs> even my favorite, but at least top three. So, in terms of Dr. Moments Guy, you had made a note. Uh, <laughs> oh, the, the Emperor's New Liar. <laughs> yeah, that's what I called it. Where uh, uh, he doesn't have any idea how to play the musical instrument. So, uh, he, he does his own little wrinkle on the Emperor's New Clothes and tells everybody that he's going to play so so delicately and with such refinement that uh, none of them are uh, you know only the most discerning ears will be able to <laughs> to hear it uh i got a kick out of that i uh it certainly <laughs> wasn't what i was expecting for his uh his way to get out of that dilemma so uh, i thought it was cute <laughs> yeah i i think that's i think it's a terrific moment it's very funny and hartnell's obviously having it oh yeah right and it's also humorous that leading up to this, part of what's confusing is the doctor is not concerned at all about when he's going to have to play. And you're like, but, you know, once you play, you're going to be exposed. But he's already got this all worked out. What, um, now, interesting one for you, Toby. I mean, I feel like, you know, Hartnell is kind of an intense, grumpy guy, and yet he clearly so loved doing the comedy. Do you, do you have any thoughts about that or, you know, what... Well, I mean, he's, you know, he's the star of the first Carry On film. Right. We watched that for the, for the podcast. Yeah. Uh, and you know, he was, uh, I mean, when he did a lot of comedy, he was, he was, he was often the straight man, but I mean, he started out in, uh, like comedies and stuff like that. He was a Billy Hunter, wasn't he? Um, but I think, I mean, I think, I mean, I think most actors like, like doing comedy and the, and the, the beauty of the first doctor is that he's, you know, he's, he's often conceived. And I think we see him in our mind's eye as this sort of crotchety old dude. And that's partially because I think a lot of history tells us that a lot of people that worked with him, oh, you know, yes, well, he was a crotchety old man. And I think they sometimes mistake Hartwell for the doctor because let's not forget he was 56 when we're watching it at the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, he wasn't that, you know, it's a lot of character there. 
And I think he had, I, I love seeing Hartnell flex his comedy muscles because he, he clearly has a ball doing. Mm-hmm. And he's got some lovely moments with Vicky in this as well. He, you know, when the sparks ignite between him and somebody with whom he's having a delightful time, it's a, it's a joy to watch. Yep. And I think, you know, when you're playing the same part week in, week out, to be able to do, you know, to refresh it to, or, or play a different mood, I think, you know, a good actor seizes that. I think he, you know, he clearly enjoys it. So question for you as an actor, I have heard, but I'm curious what you think that, um, people say, you know what, um, drama is easy. Comedy is hard. Like if you go on a comedy set, people are really nervous about, is this line working? You know, are people going to laugh, et cetera, which is, is not the case when you're like on some serious, you know, drama. Uh, it's, it's difficult because I've done so much comedy, so I've never had too much trouble with it. I mean, I mean, I'm. Because unlike a lot of actors, I'm also a, a stand-up, so that's slightly mm-hmm. slightly different. So I I, I I I tend to mind most things love. So of course I'm I'm probably the opposite of Hartnell. <laughs> I'm desperate to be taken seriously. <laughs> so you know, I, I, if somebody rings me up and offers me a part, you know, and it's like, oh, it's the the funny turn again. You go, oh, well, okay, but I would love it for somebody to take me seriously. <laughs> so, but I so I think I think that's the insight you get from me on this is that actually what most people what most actors like doing is the opposite to what they're usually doing, mm. you know, which is why I remember somebody said to me, you know, why did Trout leave Doctor Who? What's wrong with getting typecast? And it's like, because as an actor, you know, we haven't signed up for a regular thing, you know, that the, the, the excitement of the job is always the new job. That's the excitement as an actor. Mm. You know, an actor is, is probably at his happiest between learning what the new job is and, and starting the new job, you know, it's, it's the new knowledge and the anticipation. That's, that's, that's the really, that's the really key time to be happy as an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but comedy, I, I don't know. I, as I say, I, I, for what, what, whatever abilities I might have, I seem to, I, I, you know, com- comedy seems to be something that, um, I, I seem to manage to do okay. So that thing about whether it's hard or not, I get more satisfaction out of doing a scene where I've cried and produced real tears mm. than I do out of doing a scene where I get a laugh. But I suppose that's because I'm used to mm-hmm. getting laughs. Right. Um, but I know that a lot of actors that I work with, you know, when they find out that you do comedy, actors particularly are more admiring of, of comedians than almost anything else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because they, as an actor, you're pretending to be someone else, whereas as, as a comic, you know, even though it's exaggerated and lies, you know, and all that sort of thing, when you're standing up there in front of an audience, to all intents and purposes, it is just you. And that, a lot of actors, it surprised me. This is only something I've learned as I've gone through my career. When you meet actors you really admire, and they go, oh my God, I could do that. Because the idea of them standing up mm. stripped of character mm. and lines and context is, is terrifying to them. But I've, I've, I forced myself to do that quite early on. So, I, I guess I don't have that, but uh, I can see why actors might might find comedy, I've, and, and it is quite mechanical. I mean, doing doing a comedy on stage, particularly actually, even a far, you know, in a farce like the Romans, that the thing about really good comedy is something that might have to have been quite mechanical in terms of timing it, getting the looks right, getting the exits and the entrances right. Mm-hmm. Actually, has to it has to look effortless because the minute you see the mechanics right. the minute the joke right. doesn't work right. because it has to look real so in terms of that yes it is it is quite a sort of it is a scientific approach if you like to something that looks organic mm. uh, because it has to be to work right. yeah and i've been really impressed you know rob williams Stephen martin other folks who are comedians 
when they go really serious, they can do an amazing job. I mean, it's really surprising. Yeah, and Doctor Who has a history of that, of giving good actors who were maybe known for sitcoms or whatever a chance to play the sort of role they didn't usually get. John Nathan Turner gets a lot of stick later in his era, but quite, quite a lot of his more successful castings were taking actors who at the time were well-known for comedy arts and giving them a serious eye. I think off the top of William Gaunt, who's a fantastic actor and a fantastic actor, but to TV audiences at the time, he was the cuddly dad from a sitcom called <laughs> No Place Like mm. Home. And he plays, uh, you know, a Knight of the Grand Order of Oberon and Orsini and, and you know, steals all the honours in, uh, in Revelation of the Dikes. But it's partially because it's a contrast to what the audience are used to. And I think that's quite fun as an audience is, is if you know and like an actor, is seeing them do something that you're not used to them doing. And mm -hmm. I think Derek, Derek Francis, who played Nero, was a, was a friend of uh, Jacqueline Hill. And I think to seize the opportunity, you know, I, th I think he uh, was a highly thought of actor, but, but to, 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 you know, to, 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 to come in and, and do, um, you know, comic turn as Nero was probably very attractive to him. Mm. Yeah, we had an equivalent in the U.S., you know, Fred McMurray was an actor who did mm -hmm. like My Two Dads, which is a very long running TV show, you know, comedy. And then he did like Double Indemnity, which is the classic mm. film noir, you know, murdering somebody, et cetera. And part of the reason the movie works almost is like, wait, that's Fred McMurray. Yeah. <laughs> doing that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it surprises you that, that comics can act, but of course comics can. Uh, and I, th I, th I think some, there's, you know, there's some really bold casting of, of, of that, seeing somebody who you're used to seeing as a funny turn suddenly go cold could be a real, could be a real chiller, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say that as a, as a, as a stand, as a comedian who wants to be taken seriously. So I'm not necessarily the most objective <laughs> commentator at this juncture. All right. So now we move to, um, it's got to be the most controversial story <laughs> of the season, the web planet. Now, one point, Toby, I actually had this elaborate plan because uh, a friend of mine who's been on our podcast a couple times, she is an expert in psychedelics. And uh, I had this plan to do a special episode <laughs> where she would give me and her psychedelics, which I'm not something I've had, and we would watch the web planet and then talk about it <laughs> because it seems appropriate for that. Now that fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know, <laughs> that plan didn't work out. Now, the interesting thing is I think both guy, you know, you know, and I'd only seen it like once before. So in rewatching it, both guy and I were kind of on board for about half of it. And we typically will split these into two. So, uh, so our second episode for the last half, we were both basically slightly drunk and losing our will to live as I put it, as the story went on. So I don't, what's, what's your take on the web plan? <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I read the book as a youth and it was one of my favorites. And I remember drawing pictures inspired by seeing a, a fleet of, uh, Minoctra flying through space and, you know, and, 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 and it seemed so amazing. And all of, in the book that all the different Minoctra have, you know, character and you like them and all of that sort of thing. Uh, and I remember getting it up on, on video and being appalled. Uh, and I, I mean, it's, it's probably one of my, I mean, I watched it quite a lot when I was younger because I had fewer episodes at my disposal. 
But in recent years, uh, uh, you know, it, it is not a story I go back to. I think I've gone back to it mm. when it came out on DVD because I always did. And then when I did it for this book, I did with Rob Shearman, where we watched every uh, story in order. And that's the last time I, <laughs> I, I saw it. Mm. Often on both of those occasions, a story would be reassessed because I liked Dalek Invasion of Earth a lot more having seen it with the context of Richard Martin's commentary explaining what he was trying to do and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, sort of documentary giving you a bit of insight. With, with the web planet, I admire its ambition. I mean, I think it was a nigh on impossible task. There are some interesting directorial flourishes, but it is, it is very clunky and it is quite dull. And, mm -hmm. and one of the things that acts against it is, is one of its major selling points is that, you know, that, Often a dull story could be driven along by interesting actors giving interesting performances, but the actors are stuffed yeah. because they're, you know, co co covered in these costumes and have that sort of staccato alien speech pattern mm. uh, that makes them sort of rather interchangeable. But it is, as a production, it is, it, it, I think it, it, it really struggles on a, on a, on a, on a, on a basic level. I think if it had been a three episode, maybe four, but three, I think it could have worked i agree the actors are lost we did we couldn't even talk about the actors because what actors i mean it didn't you know <laughs> and then and then we have the hair dryer <laughs> uh, <laughs> as the i don't know good or evil i don't even know but it was kind of bizarre how many times the hair dryer thing came down yes <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. i mean that 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 image of the doctor and vicky covered in the web is a is a lovely mm -hmm. image um, those webs were so there are moments. Good. There are moments like that. Sorry. Oh, the the web effect was surprisingly good there, just mm. for that one moment when they yeah. were both covered. Yeah. So it, you know, so it 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 does have its its moments, and I actually think the Zabi design is very good, and I feel for those actors mm. because if you think they're at sort of that oh, angle God, all yeah. the time, that heavy fiberglass mm. thing, um, you know, good good <laughs> for them. Um, and I and I do the the bit I do particularly like is is. When they encounter the the underground dwellers, who are, mm -hmm. is not the, a great design, and Ian Thompson, <laughs> who plays the leader of them, is a, is an actor that went on to have a a, a very fine career. Um, uh, he was in a series called Family of War, uh, War here, which he's excellent in. But his decision to play it like somebody who talks like this uh, <laughs> is an odd one. Uh, but they do have that great dialogue where the, he talks about. Um, we must make mouths in the wall mm -hmm. and then we'll speak mm -hmm. more lines. I like, I, 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 lo yeah. I like that idea about giving alien thought patterns, but uh, it, it's slim pickings. And I, and I think the conclusion in, in the sort of casting note when Barbara's firing the gun and all that stuff's going on is, is pretty much unintelligible. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, I think it's as close to Doctor Who ever got as, of, of something that is staged in a way that is completely incoherent. Well, and I have to mm. say, I mean, at least the Minotra, I think those are kind of beautiful costumes and they're pretty impressive and, and everything. And then we get to those underground people and <laughs> the way I describe it, it's literally like five-year-olds putting on a play. <laughs> I mean, it's really bad. <laughs> That's just, I couldn't escape that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> now, Guy did identify a doctor moment here. So do you want to? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was just sort of a moment of sheer maliciousness. Well, well, it, it was helpfulness combined with maliciousness because uh, he dips Ian's school tie in the acid to show him that it is acid and not a refreshing pool of water. 
Yeah, but when Ian complains about it being his school tie, the one keepsake he has from the school where he taught back on Earth, uh, the doctor just kind of brushes him off. He is very unsympathetic. (laughs) (laughs) It's also bizarre because if we remember from Keys of Marinus, it was Susan who was going to go into the water, and I think Ian stopped her. So for some reason, now he's okay with drinking water on a foreign planet, you know, not knowing what it is. <laughs> Although I have to say that is a nod to something I think that's very interesting about Hartnell era Doctor Who that the rest of the series kind of forgets as we as the audience take for granted what Doctor Who is. But the very environment you are in is a danger. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think you have that so much in, in Mon Doctor where, ju- where just you could land in a place where the water is acid, <laughs> right. you know, where the trees right. are... T- ju- and, and, and I think that's a very sort of 60s thing where, you know, science fiction was relatively new. So, so you didn't even have to think up a story uh, for the danger, but just the sheer change in environment right. and what, it, what something means to be alien. And I think those, those 60s stories benefit from that. And, and, it, and it makes Doctor Who sort of stranger that science fiction has, has ever been since because we've got used to, we've got used to it as an audience, right. do you know what I mean? Mm. That we're taking our stride in alien environments. Right. Yeah. I th- and I think my conclusion on Web Planet would be, I totally appreciate trying to do something ambitious, but I also believe, especially in movies and TV, true genius is having an ambitious idea and marrying it to reality and then coming up with something that works. And if you have the ambitious idea, but you don't marry it to reality, then you get the web planet. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it, you know, it, it, it has to be said, and this happens throughout Doctor Who's history, is that writers who've worked on the show write something and you think, but you know, you know what show you're working on. Why have you decided, Bob Baker and Dave Martin, for example, why have you decided to create a world for Omega, where he can produce anything out of his imagination, where you know that what has to be produced is on a BBC budget, <laughs> you know, at this time of year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's all very well you having this idea, and then when you read it in the books, you go, "Wow, I can imagine what this looks like." Yeah, sure, but the poor people who've got to make it have to not only imagine what it looks like; they have to actually make it out of what we have. I think uh, a guy, something Toby's mentioned that would you know probably be alien to you is that. For a lot of kids who did not see Doctor Who when it came out, but then were interested in it, there was a series of books, usually written by the same person who'd written the script. So they read the book, and that's what they knew of the story. And then as they became adults and Doctor Who became available on video, then they saw the story. And they had to Mm. compare what they had generated in their head (laughs) to the reality. (laughs) Okay. Because I was... When I was looking through the wiki this morning, uh, the different you know, plot synopses and everything, I'd click on some of the links about like those, uh, the one hour jackets they wore, you know, to protect them from the environment. And it, it turns out that they were used very rarely in the TV series, but there's all kinds of appearances of them, that, of them in uh, prose based on Doctor Who. And, you know, there, there were several entries I clicked on that were like that, where the, w- they just had very very few appearances in the series but but in the expanded universe to use a star wars term <laughs> you know they they appeared a lot more right right 
So next one, we could really use your help on Toby. So for the podcast, we don't watch reconstructions because we only watch things that we would recommend people watch. And I, I just can't recommend sure. people watch reconstructions. So this is the crusade. Can you tell us about this story? We know nothing. I love the crusade. It's uh, it's uh, that's another one that uh, one read the book first, but the book was quite hard going because it was quite, uh, you know, children's novels in the the sixties extremely erudite compared to what you might get there. But uh, it is an historical story set uh, at the time of the First Crusade, where uh, the Doctor, Vicky, Ian, and Barbara uh, encounter. Well, Bar Barbara is captured by the Saracens and ends up in Saladin's court. So Ian, Vicky, and the Doctor uh, end up with King Richard I, played by probably the first big-name guest star of Doctor Who, Julian Glover. Mm, right. um, yeah. Basically, Ian wants to go and, and, and rescue Barbara um, and the Doctor and Vicky hang around whilst the sort of courtly shenanigans go on involving King Richard and his sister Joanna and trying to, to trade off with Saladin based on an historical event where the, they wanted to marry Joanna off to Saladin's brother as a sort of peace uh, peace treaty. Mm. And it's a oddly it's a brilliant story. We, we have episodes one and three. For a while, we only had episode three. Episode three has some of the best dramatic scenes in all of Doctor mm. Who. It's su superbly written. Uh, some of it is written in iambic pentameter. So mm, it has the wow. feel of a sort of Shakespeare. And in fact, some of the lines were then used in the Shakespeare code as some of the Shakespeare uh, play. So reminiscent wow. are they of mm. Shakespeare. Where, where um, are and, those and, available? Uh, they are on the Lost in Time. Okay. Set. I have that, I think. Uh, def definitely worth a look. The scenes, the, uh, I mean, I, Interesting. Where, where it, it is a flawed story. I probably like it more than I should partially because it's missing and partially because I like the idea of liking something that's not an obvious classic. Hmm. But I, it's, it's brilliantly written in terms of the, the dialogue and the characterization. In terms of as a Doctor Who story, a lot of the best stuff happens where the Doctor is a bystander. So that the standout scenes in episode three are Richard trying to persuade Joanna to marry Safadin. Uh, Julian Glover and Jean Marsh, who plays Joanna, are absolutely fantastic. And there's a couple of face-offs that are Jeez. brilliant. Hartnell has a good moment as well, though, where he faces off with the Earl of Leicester, who is a soldier. And uh, the Doctor calls him a stupid butch butcher. And, uh, and, and Leicester has a perfectly understandable riposte about soldiers sorting everything out on the battlefield while people parlay in court. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really good face-off stuff for good actors d doing good acting really, really well. But it also... For the time, uh, it is laudable in that Saladin is not a bad guy. Saladin is shown as a war-weary, courteous, manipulative, political, but he, he is on an equal footing with, with Richard, who can be petulant uh, and petty uh, mm. and, and actually sort of slightly spoilt. And in fact, Saladin is, is a lot more dignified. And Saladin is played, uh, I'm slightly biased, I, 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 I like this actor a lot, by Bernard Kay who had previously been in the Dalek Invasion of Earth as Tyler, mm. the leader of the Resistance. Uh, and it's a superb performance of a war-weary man having to turn to politics because he spent too much time on the battlefield. Uh, it's a really intelligent story. How however, then in episode three, they forget all of that. Mm. And you don't see Saladin again after episode three. Well, and and it becomes the Doctor and, and, and Ian and Barbara who's met this other... Uh, because there's a nasty Saracen as well, who's met this other Saracen. It becomes a sort of revenge story that Ian helps with. So the, the, the sort of Richard, Richard and Saladin stuff is sort of abandoned about three quarters of the way through uh, and the story. So it's slightly oddly structured, 
which I, I think some could fairly point out is a slight fault with it. But I, I think what we gain from it in terms of it trying to include Saladin and Richard means that the story is sent beyond just mm. a, we're having an adventure within a historical context because we have the major players and, and those characters are very, very well drawn. I think it's an excellent story and the dialogue is fantastic. And also Hartnell gets some funny moments because he gets to steal their clothes from a, <laughs> from some, some poor merchant uh, and, and they get to sort of, he and Vicky, Vicky disguises herself as a page boy. Mm. Uh, and this, this mm. has, means that they have, she has some quite nice comic interplay with the doctor and with the Chamberlain court and it's good fun. Whilst Ian gets to be the hero and Barbara gets some good moments as well. It's a good one for the four regulars because it's David Whittaker, the, the script editor, writing. He, he, he gives it a decent slice. Do you know mm. if there are any plans to animate this one? <sighs> I, I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's one with a lot of characters. And, and, and my understanding of it is for, for, for the animations, ones with lots of characters are tricky because you have to get a concept artist to, to design each character and 10 different facial expressions. T- 10 different torsos of bloody bloody blood mm. I, d- I don't know yeah. if there's i don't know well, if the plans i to so enjoy it when they do animate them in fact when we start the next season of doctor who when we started this podcast we would not have been able to watch galaxy four i've never seen it mm. i'm holding off until we get to it so ah. and also when we get to patrick trouton i haven't seen probably half of what we're going to watch because they're all animated oh, great. ones that have oh well there's plenty to enjoy that so so i really hope they do because i think that makes it so much more accessible definitely Mm. and it's a really good story and i think and i think it's it's lack of visibility uh means that it's perhaps not as appreciated as it should be right so Mm. now we move to um the space museum well uh let me start with guy as as the new guy i mean of course we did our whole episode on everything what what's your take on this story overall um, looking back on it, it was, it was fun. It had some neat stuff in it. Although, uh, I think, I think the governor was a mi- missed opportunity because uh, the, uh, the actor who played the governor struck me as an interesting actor, but I think he wasn't really given, uh, enough scenery to chew. You know? <laughs> I think he could have been a lot more fun. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but overall it, it had its interesting moments. There were, uh, you know, that whole mystery in the first episode, um, of, you know, why, why is everything frozen? And then, oh, we're saying some kind of time slip or something, you know? And, uh, so, I mean, they kind of dragged it out a little bit maybe, but, uh, yeah, overall it was, it was, it was fun. Not one of my favorites, but fun. <laughs> yeah. I think I come down with, I think most of fandom in that I think the first episode is one of the best openings of any Doctor Who story it's amazing it's intriguing you want to know what's going on you know them as seeing themselves as the exhibit etc now i will say on my rewatch here probably the second time that i've watched it um the rest of it didn't piss me off <laughs> the way i think mm-hmm. it did the first time i was able to go with it a little bit more but you know it just doesn't follow the promise of the first episode and i totally agree i mean both not only Lobos, the governor, was a missed opportunity to have a real personality, but also the uh, the rebels. I mean, like they keep talking about Tor or whatever, who's the main rebel, but there's no personality there. There's no character. I mean, they just mm. missed the opportunity 
to have actual characters that we could react to. So, so with all that, what, what's your take, Toby? Well, I mean, yes, I mean, I, I agree. I think the first episode is fantastic. And, and then they, and, and again, weird, it's a sideways story. And then once they get that out of the way, it's three episodes of running up and down corridors and then, <laughs> you know, the rebels are young men in black, Remembering you know, that Toby has contributed to a on. book called Running Through Corridors. Right? <laughs> well, yes, indeed. Um, uh, actually, the, the book of the Space Museum is interesting because, again, you get more of an insight into what the writer, Glyn Jones, was trying to do is that I think he'd intended this to be funnier than perhaps it was. Mm. Um, although that wow, might be... I, I have um, a hard time I, seeing that. I'm very <laughs> uh, um, uh, And I agree that, I mean, Lobos and Tor, who you both mentioned, are both sci-fi icons as actors, but I think you're right, they're both largely anonymous in this because Lobos is played by Richard Shaw, who is slandered in Quasi Mass of the Bit, the workman who gets... Wow. Gets the gravel I loved him in quite a mass. I would never uh, have uh, realized this was the same guy. Wow. Absolutely. Mm. It's a superb performance in Quasi Mass. And it, it and he's he's he he doesn't have an awful lot of fun with this. It's 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 he it, you know, he he doesn't get an awful lot to do and I don't think he seizes the opportunity particularly and Tor is Boba Fett wow uh, Tor is <laughs> okay. Jeremy Bullock uh, who, but, so, so this was uh, not a particularly auspicious <laughs> thing for you st- no wow no. <laughs> um, but um, I, I think Hartnell gets some good moments he gets the moment where he hides inside the Dalek which is very no, nice that was cute uh, yeah. he he gets the great moment where he, he, you know, he's being interrogated, isn't he? And the, and the, the machine delves into his mind and, and yeah. they ask how he got here and he shows a picture of a penny farthing. And <laughs> right. there's also a, a, which, a, a which shot Which is funny of for Hart, us because we had done the prisoner on this podcast. Ah, right? ah, <laughs> ah. But, but there's also a shot in that of Hartnell in a Victorian bathing costume, which he will have had to have got into <laughs> for a photo shoot, which uh, it's a shame we don't actually have that photo, but apart from on on the screen in that, because that would be a thing to cherish. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's a story that I think has a really interesting premise about playing with time and about time tracks and about the inevita- inevitability of, of, of trying to stave off something that has happened. I try to use time as a concept, which I think is very laudable, but that they don't really do anything with that. And Vicky has fun when she helps the rebels trans, trans it's funny how fast machine. she becomes it's, a rebel <laughs> yeah but 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 you know it, it is slim pickings i think now, the, but the i will put it so you mentioned the doctor moment of hiding inside the dalek and i agree but to me um when we get to the end we'll choose our favorite you know doctor moment to me i love it i think it's the very end of the first episode when he says we have arrived mm, yeah. brilliant close-up of yeah. his face as well and i just think that's amazing i mean that's great Anything, Guy, you wanted to say otherwise on this? No, no. I think we, we gave it a good uh, right. once-over. Now, uh, maybe you can clarify something. We had a little bit of debate about this. The eyebrow thing, my impression from what I'd seen was that they did actually shave their eyebrows and put the the things above, but we weren't. But Guy thought maybe they just put makeup over their eyebrows. Do you know <laughs> this important question? Ooh. Did they shave? I don't. I I think because if you shave your eyebrows off, they 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 run the danger of not not growing back. Oh, oh I didn't I know that. I think if the actors have, yeah, yeah, I think if the actors had shaved their eyebrows off, that would have been. And I've interviewed a few actors from the Space Museum that that somebody would have said, okay. "Do you know what? So and so's eyebrows never grew back." So I, I don't think actors would have gone through that sort of 
agony because I know they asked Saran Jones to shave her eyebrows off the Sarah Jane adventures where she played the Mona Lisa. And she said, no way, am mm. I doing that? Uh, I, I, I think it's a big ask. And if, if I was in a feature film and you asked me to shave my eyebrows off, I would consider it. If I was in Doctor Who in 1965 <laughs> playing a rebel, uh, okay. I'd go, not on your so, Nelly. I've got to, I've, I've got to play King Lear next week. <laughs> so I was probably wrong. Now, the thing I did mention there is actually the, th the really bad idea about shaving your eyebrows off is there is an evolutionary reason for them, which is sweat from your forehead gets collected uh, in your eyebrows. If you take your eyebrows off, it goes right into your eyes. Um, so it's a bad idea in general, but I had no idea that they might not grow back. So in that case, yeah, it's a really bad idea. <laughs> yeah. I had an art teacher who had to draw hers on, um, yeah. seems very odd to shave, but I think people do it now. Now we have an aversion to air these days. <laughs> and I think a lot of young people shave their eyebrows off and then draw them back on again, which seems to be absolutely bananas. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so now we get to The Chase, another Richard Martin production. And I just, I will say up front, I have a totally irrational love of this story. <laughs> I can't defend it very much. Also, you know, and we talked about in the episode, in my opinion, in my timeline, the mechanoids wiped out the Daleks and are now the premier Doctor Who villains. <laughs> I would have loved that because I love the mechanoids. I mean, I'd like them to be a little more understandable. But other than that, I loved them. So, just, so that's where I come down. <laughs> yeah. There's just too many doorways that they'd have to try to fit through. I think that's the problem. I mean, actually, you know what? Of all the Doctor Who toys, and I don't know, Toby, maybe you have a line for me. I have not been able to find a mechanoid toy well did you know that they made a mechanoid in the 60s yeah, as well yeah. uh, uh, you know it was one of the first first things to have a have a toy made of it and aren't they a beautiful i beautiful know thing? i would love to have uh, it. is there anything modern you're you're saying there isn't uh i i think they might have done i, I think they might have done now uh a character options i think they have now but i am okay I've, I, I have to draw a line somewhere <laughs> so uh, i no, that's my that's, first i will get one if i can find one but but the mechanoids come at the end so we have an, another interrogation thing where uh i remember you know we talked about it with uh guy and i talked about it with kiza marinus where a problem with terry nation was that the Daleks worked so well that he believed that the production crew could do anything. So then he did Keys and Marinus where he did, you know, six or seven different settings and they were stuck trying, you know, with their budget, trying to create all these different things. Where in the Daleks, you really didn't have that. You had the Dalek city and you had a couple of exterior sets. So he does it again in the chase where every single episode takes place in a different place. So they have to have different mm. sets for every single one. And we have what I think was the, the worst case of trying to, so trying to recreate the amazing thing from the first, the end of the first episode of the Dalek invasion of earth, where this Dalek comes up out of the water and you're kind of shocked and surprised. And in this one, they have the Dalek come up out of the sand and it's coughing. And just, <laughs> it's like it has asthma. I'm like, this is not a very scary scene. <laughs> Well, you see, this is, this is where I, 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 I struggle uh, with, you know, like lofty ambitions that you don't quite pull off. Mm. I've tried to learn to be a bit more understanding of in my old age, oh, sure. but that stylistic decision to go, we have these creatures that are, uh, 
you know, the, the scourge of, of, of the universe and, and these things that have become icons and that, that have, you know, that, that have become the making of Doctor Who. And our instinct, therefore, is to undermine that by having one that coughs when he <laughs> comes up. In that cliffhanger, for goodness sake. <laughs> yes, a thing might cough if it's got sand. That doesn't help with the drama at all. And then you've got a thick, you've got a thick one later on where they say, you know, how long till we get to the planet? And this one goes, uh, um, I think, uh. And you go, I, again, that might <laughs> it, it attempt to make it more real, mm-hmm. but it doesn't help with what the job of the program is. Yeah. So that, to me, smacks a little bit of, you know, the show needs a bit of a shake-up because everyone's getting a bit pleased with themselves and a little bit uh, bored with what right. they've got. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to do something different, but different is not necessarily good. Right. And I th- And I think... But, but that said, last time I did the chase, I did it for for my podcast where I'm trying to be positive on it, and it was and it was nominated by a friend of mine who you know who loved it for all its silliness mm-hmm. and accepted it on its own terms, and I and I did enjoy it because of that because it is entertaining and it's daft. <laughs> but uh, I think when I was a young Doctor Who fan who wanted Doctor Who to be terribly serious right. and to 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 match my childhood imaginings of what this epic chase through space and time would be, I didn't think it would be quite so sort of childish <laughs> which of course it's, it is a children's right. science fiction program so yeah. that that might be my problem but i think i think some of those stylistic choices are are, are slightly sort of feeble <laughs> um, well then you know like the episode where they're in the um vampire whatever uh, yeah. part, uh I don't know on the one hand it's totally silly but again i just i just love that they tried to make that work and i just it, it, I, you know, yeah, I, I can't, I can't claim I think it's barely transmittable. It. It's barely transmissible. <laughs> I, mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's a catalog of it. And it's funny because if you listen to the, the commentary, you know, that because they, they actually mis, misunderstand. I mean, obviously it's many, many years later, but, and it was a last minute edition. I think you don't, unless you know what that final shot is where it says you mm-hmm. know the festival of ghana has been postponed this is frankenstein's house of art unless you're really paying attention to what that means is that you could believe uh, to this day dr boot believes that that took place in the human mm-hmm. mind because you know he says to him, where was that and it's not that it was a robot dracula a robot right. frankenstein but it's not terribly clear and it's not terribly clear that that's what terry nation intended because mm-hmm. as i say i think that that final shot is is a is a later addition mm. because mm. somebody went this this can't this can't be in the human mind this is this is up so it's a so it's a fun fair gone wrong but that mm. throws up all sorts of different questions where are the people in charge of the fun fair you know whatever whatever and it's quite technically flawed you know you can see a Dalek in the background before the Daleks have la- landed and you know various things like that mm. so it's a bit it's a bit shonky. But of course, you forget about that by the time you get to the robot Doctor Who, <laughs> where things are even worse. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, they're all headline grabbers. Every episode has a headline. Mm. You know, the, the, the planet of the fish people, the sad fish people, the Mary Celeste, mm-hmm. you know, the Frankenstein and Dracula, the death of Doctor Who. It's called the death of Doctor Who because <laughs> Doctor Who's robot right. double gets killed. You know, it's it's all like, wow, this is. Let's throw all of the headlines. That's at the this. end of time, but, or but something. Then, yeah, we. I mean, yeah, we made fun of the titles. <laughs> that uh, I liked the Mary so Celeste. So you can see what they're doing, yeah. but it's it's cheeky. Yeah. I had fun mm-hmm. with the Mary Celeste, and wasn't. Yeah. What was the other half of that? Was that the uh, New York uh, Empire oh, State? Building. And of course, Empire State, because I mean, <laughs> Stephen, you know, um, 
Peter is so fun playing that. And then of course the bizarre thing of him coming back as another character at the end, because they just liked him so much. Yeah. Yeah. Peter Purvis is great as as that character. He's very And I think the best part of that is when he leans down to the plunger and speaks into it. (laughs) Yes. So I don't know. It's wacky. I can't defend it at all. I just, I love the chase. I love the mechanoids. And then of course we have just this devastating companion departures of both Ian and Barbara. Mm. And I, and, and, you know, oh. it was shot by the next director, but I love those, you know, the photographs that they used of them going through London. Yeah. It's hot. It's heartbreaking. And I think they all do it very, very well. And it's, uh, you know, I think we forget because there have been companions since, you know, they were part of the original yeah. quartet and they're the last, you know, they're the last remnant beyond the doctor mm-hmm. of, of, of how the show started. They are so key to the success of the early years of the show. I love them both as actors. I love them both as characters. I think they both do a lot more than, than those characters could have done in the way that television was made. Well, it could have been so bad. Uh, uh, I mean, if they, if those yeah. two people had not played it that way, it, the whole show, I don't know if it could have continued. I mean, Oh, I, I, I love the both. I think, I think William Russell is, is great at the heroic stuff, but he, he is also utterly charming mm-hmm. and, and, and he's important behind the scenes as well, because Hartnell was not always on top of stuff. He was, even though he was only in his fifties, he was, you know, you know, now he was, he was, you know, succumbing to an illness, uh, you know, he was important there as the sort of steady rock as they were making it, you know, as those episodes were being done pretty much in one right. take as far as possible. Hmm. He, you know, he is the controlling force that Jacqueline Hill is Barbara, female characters on television at the time. You know, you look at a lot of them now and you go, God, they were asked to do some awful, yeah. awful stuff and, 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 and often be simpering or ineffectual. And she has to do a fair share of screaming things, but actually she's given so she, she takes so many opportunities to be so much more than yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, actually, I've looked at some of the scripts from some of the early stuff, and often lines that were intended for Ian are given hmm. to Barbara. Hmm. And you wonder if that's William Russell being a generous actor going, no, no, come on, I should be doing all the deducing. You have this. And, and it just means that I think the hmm. pair of them, I think Jacqueline Hill is well, a terrific She's actress. a powerful I, I love them, and I'm desperately sad that they leave. She's mm. a powerful woman. And in the Aztecs, she actually plays a God, you know, and then, you know, <laughs> yeah. and really inhabits that and kind of comes to think of herself as a God for a little bit. So guy, where are you on this kind of bizarre story? <laughs> uh, yeah, looking back on it, it was, uh, there was a lot of fun stuff in it. I, I really did like the Mary Celeste thing, you know, a funny little twist there that uh you know that centuries old mystery it turns out it was the daleks all along <laughs> that was that was cute uh yeah it's it's you know it was fun it just sort of went all over the place new york and uh ghana and <laughs> you know uh it's just fun so i uh you know i wouldn't say as a uh brilliant coherent story you know maybe it's not the you know, not, not the cleverest story in the world, but it's fun, fun watching, I'd say. Okay. So now we come to our final story of the season, the time meddler. And again, I, I just have to, I just love this story. Mm-hmm. And, and mostly I love Peter Butterworth who plays the monk. Now I forgot in our final time meddler episode to talk about Peter Butterworth's background. So Toby, you probably know as much or, or 
far more than I do. Do you, can you talk about where, how he started acting and all that? Do you, do you have that uh, loaded up? Well, well, we often think of in this country, we think of Peter Butterworth actually for what happened after mm. this, which was that he's a member of the carry on mm, team, right, mm. right. but I've got a feeling he, he, I don't think he'd done any, if many carry ons by this point. No, cause there'd only so been like we, one. We, you know, yeah. So I don't think he'd done them by this point. So we see him as this sort of comedic actor, but actually his, his story is very interesting. It's not necessarily particularly interesting to this, but, but he was a, he was a, cause he tells the great story of, of, of he was a prisoner right. of war and he escaped from German concentration camp and he was actually captured by the Hitler youth, which, <laughs> that's it, which is an actor, you know, never worked with children. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, and, and he was turned down for a role in the film, the Trojan horse, which is that famous escape film. You know, where, uh, uh, the wooden horse, where, mm. where they dug a tunnel underneath the, the thing that you jump over. Even though he'd been part of, right. he'd been in the prison at the time that, that happened, he was turned down for a role in the film because he was told he didn't look athletic enough. Mm. Uh, and he's like, well, I was actually there. <laughs> uh, but he, he's, to, to, to us in, in the UK, he's very well known as a, as a comedy actor. But actually, I don't know that he had that baggage as much then as, mm -hmm. as he would subsequently. Mm. But he is the only interesting character really in the time mm -hmm. and he just runs away with yeah. it. Mm -hmm. um, he's absolutely terrific. He's a wonderful, pesky comic <laughs> turn and it's docked and it's suddenly the show looking at itself and going, it's such an important story in time. Mm -hmm. Doesn't look like it because it's just well, a it changes a funny the whole story. universe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly there's that cliffhanger, the monk's got a TARDIS. I mean, at the time gobsmack it because the idea of that was so beyond the realms of the imagination of what the show was like and the show very you know was really didn't look at its own mythology that much in, right. in those days mm -hmm. uh, and it's dennis spooner again who's the guy that's introduced you know perhaps more arch comedy prior to this you know that becomes part of doctor who's dna he's now looked at the looked at the show's mythology itself and said well let's you know let's mix this this up a little bit and so the, the time matter is sort of more than a sum of its parts and it has great fun with that mm -hmm. concept. You know, med meddler is the right word because he's got this sort of to-do list. <laughs> That's that my is, favorite yeah. part. That's, That's like one of my favorite things of all of Doctor Who is that to-do list. We read through the whole thing in the episode. Uh, also, I have to say, he and Hartnell clearly got along. I mean, I didn't read anything about yeah. this, but just watching it, they are so delighted to work with each other. <laughs> it's just obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's... And, and it's it, they, they have they have a great playoff with each other, and Hartnell rises to the occasion, and and, and Butterworth knows exactly how to pitch it. It's delightful. Oh, yeah. Now, some of the other stuff about his past that I'd read is um, he had not done acting before he was a POW, and he started acting as part of stuff as a POW. And part of what they were doing is they would do these terrible productions that everybody in the audience would boo at. But part of the whole point of this was as they were booing at him. You couldn't hear the tunnel digging. The, the escapes. Yep, that's right. That's right. I've forgotten about that. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, uh, he, he told some very entertaining stories about his, uh, his, which when you think about how, how horrific it must have been, really, um, right. uh, well, you know, it's a sign of how, how amazing those people were. He was part of mm -hmm. this bizarre time period in the war. Uh, we talked about it, or I've at least talked with Guy about this before, and we, we're probably going to, cover some of these films in the future there was this weird period where officers and such would escape from german camps 
and then get recaptured and put back in the camp and then they would escape again. And it was all kind of a game, kind of like the Hogan's Heroes series, which was Mm. a big deal to me as a kid. And there was a point where the Germans decided this is getting silly and they just started shooting people who had escaped instead of putting them back and that put an end to it. Mm. But there was this weird little period where it was a game to escape and get recaptured and escape and, you know, yeah. Yes, it, the, the more resources being thrown at trying to recapture us, the fewer resources they can use to stave off invasions and, mm. you know, and do their empire building and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, mm. it was, it was, you know, low level sort of hokum, as it were, to frustrate the enemy. Mm. But it means that you do have this weird sort of subgenre of war where, as you say, everyone's terribly civilized to each other. <laughs> um, and sort of, you know, there are, there are certain rules that are obeyed that now you look at and just think, God, they just line you up against them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I do have, uh, one of my favorite doctor moments in this. I think it's one of the best pieces of dialogue in all of doctor who <laughs> When the doctor is talking to Steven and he says, and he's trying to convince Steven that they're in a time machine, right? That is the de- dematerializing control. And that over yonder is the horizontal hold up. There is the scanner. Those are the doors. That is a chair with a panda on it. Sheer poetry, dear boy. Yeah. Now, please stop bothering me. And it's like, that's such a brilliant piece of dialogue. It's gorgeous. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Uh, uh, the Viking helmet. What do you think it is? A space helmet for a cow. <laughs> I just Wonderful. felt like the writer was having fun with this. That's Dennis, Dennis Spooner, a very important figure in, yeah. in Doctor Who's history. The guy, you yeah, had another definitely. Doctor moment here. Well, yeah, it's, um, it really, it's, it's a moment that shows the doctor means business because at the Mm. end of the whole story arc, of course, he, he strands the monk in the year 1066 for, you know, however long it takes the monk to figure out how to fix his TARDIS, if he even can. I mean, I can't blame the doctor. It seems like a very callous and heartless thing to do, but the monk's established that he can't be trusted and if he gets, you know, if he gets left on his, to his own devices again, he's going to go meddling with time again. So the doctor really has to do something drastic and, uh, he does something real drastic. <laughs> so it's a, it's an interesting moment. It sees, it shows you a slightly different angle on the doctor. Yeah. And it's a great visual as well when the uh, (laughs) sticks his head in the TARDIS and it's a, it's a small TARDIS. And this ties to human nature, you know, far in the future when at the end of that storyline, the doctor is quite cruel. Now this is, I don't know if Guy and I are going to live long enough that we get to that point, (laughs) but that's, those two episodes are, are two of my favorites in all of Doctor Who. So I hope someday to be able to, to get Guy there. But yeah, this idea that he can be a cruel person is, is interesting. So that's the season. Um, and just to kind of, you know, summarize things, I don't know. We have kind of favorite worst story. I mean, for me, boy, it's tough. Um, but I, I have to say just because of the impact I talked about before, I had to go with Dalek Invasion of Earth because that is the, that is the story that made me want to watch all of Doctor Who. And maybe now I'd say maybe the time meddler or something, but I, I can't escape the impact of Dalek invasion of earth on me in terms of a favorite worst. I, the last three episodes of the web planet, I just can't, you know, I was falling asleep. Literally. I, I can't, you know, I just can't, you know, yeah, I can't go there. Uh, guy, what's your, what's your thought? 
for favorites, I think I think I'm probably going to say the Romans. Yeah. Uh, looking looking back on all of them, that's the one that really sort of stands out most fondly in my mind. Uh, uh, so I think I think maybe the Romans. Mm-hmm. Now for worst, uh, that's a that's that's a that's a tougher one. Hmm. I'm looking over the list here. Don't good reason it wouldn't be that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's a that's a that's a tough call. I'd say the the planet of giant giants. Uh, the ending of it had that pretty hokey thing where the scientist didn't. For some reason, that that bothered me inordinately. <laughs> I think that the scientist never tested his thing on anything but insects. Uh, that, but uh, yeah, I. But are I, you I'm really going to say planet of giants is worse than the web planet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but see that had its moments. See, yeah, that's the yeah. thing. They all they all have their moments. So, yeah. I mean, you know, if if I, I I hate to just point at one and say that's unequivocally bad. Yeah, so. well, okay, we'll say you're going to go with Planet of Giants. That's fine. You got to go with what you're going to go with. Uh, tell me, what are your yeah. thoughts? It's difficult. Um, I, I mean, I love I love all of Black and White too, um, and I I love the you know the ambition of this series, the sheer scale and ambition they do uh, with this period of Doctor Who, even though we've been quite, it's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? How the nature of these things is to often dwell on the bits that don't quite work. Mm. Um, uh, but uh, my favorite, I think is probably the crusade. Mm. I just think it's a, a wonderful piece of writing. It's got some fine, fine acting in it, but also it has the lure of being, you know, not a hundred percent tangible. That's always, that's always appealing to an archeologist. And my least favorite is difficult. I, I would have to probably be honest and go just on the sheer amount of times I, I lured back to it. The, the one that I go back to the least is, is the web planet because it is hard work, even though I have to acknowledge, you know, the ambition mm. and, 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 you know, good, good on them for trying to pull it mm, off. Right. Uh, I think it's more ambitious than say the space museum, which is a bit lame, um, <laughs> But it, but at least it it, mm-hmm. it it doesn't have some of the egregious decisions <laughs> of of uh, the web. So I think on balance, I would say probably the, the I have to be honest to go. Much as I admire them for trying, the web planet can't be set to work. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd say I, I I I can understand the choice of the web planet, but there were a lot of things that I liked the way that the actors did their sort of pantomime, their graceful, I mean, it didn't always work well, but sometimes it did. And it was a, it was a neat, a neat thing to try. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, the hog calling contest that they had, that was, yeah, they had their money that week, the actors, but, 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 you know, it's not something cherished on the credits. It says insect movement by Rosalind de Winter. And if that's not something to cherish, I don't know what is. <laughs> okay, so we have best and worst villain. So I'll start out and say, I mean, for me, worst is the hairdryer in the web planet. I just I was like, oh my God, the hairdryer is coming down again. I just, I yeah. And it turned out the hairdryer was like a big jelly. It was supposed to be a big spider, but it was actually yeah. a big jellyfish looking thing. But I thought it was funny. We talked about the time that even in the production, they called it a hairdryer at some point. They're like, yeah, we know it looks like <laughs> yeah, a hairdryer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, the best, uh, I just love the monk. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I wouldn't even necessarily call him a bad guy, but I just love him, and he's he's my favorite. Uh, where are you at, guy? 
Well, the monk would be in my top three. I, I might have liked Nero more. Mm. Um, and I also got a kick, even though I didn't have a lot of screen time, I got a kick out of the robot Doctor Who, which, uh, or, the, <laughs> or the robot doctor. In the credits, he's actually called Robot Doctor Who, so I'm going to say that's official canon. His name is Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I got a kick out of, like, when the... The Daleks are giving him instructions. He says, yes, yes, I know what to do. Or just that, that sort of thing. He's He just mimicked the doctor. Well, it was actually the doctor. Well, no, the actor, actually, they dubbed the doctor's voice over some of the scenes. But uh, anyway, it was just cute. But uh, I think probably Nero is my favorite with the monk as a close second. All right. Where are you at, Toby? Well, I think there's, you know, there's rich pickings, actually. And, and yes, you were quite right to flag up Robot Doctor. Uh, you know, we have been, sort of, we have knocked this series, but, but isn't, but to go, right, we've got the Mary Celeste, and then we've got two Doctor Whos in one episode, and one of them's Robot. That, you know, they certainly, this is the sort of stuff that as a kid must have been so exciting between episodes of couple you know. I, so I, I, you know, it's it's easy for us sometimes, I think, to go, oh, they didn't quite pull that off. But what they were trying to do is make the most exciting thing you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And good on them for trying. Um, uh, you've mentioned Peter Butterworth, who I think is superb. Uh, you've mentioned Derek Francis as, as Nero, who I think is lovely. But I'm going to... So because of that, <laughs> um, and he, again, he's not really a villain because it's it's so beautifully written, but he is a, a, a an antagonist. But I, I, I think Bernard Kay's performance as Saladin in... Mm. The Crusade is mm. one of the best Doctor Who performances, especially as the headline grabber is Julian Glover because he's famous and playing Richard, which is a much bigger, broader part. What Bernard Kay brings to Saladin is the thoughtfulness and subtlety that uh, is is a really intelligent take, uh, especially you know at that time when you know you've got white actors blacking up and attitudes were very different mm. Uh, mm. back in the day. It's it's treated with subtlety and intelligence. Um, so Bernard K is Saladin for me, please. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you're really but, making me hope that they animate this at some point. I, mm. I think it's becoming clear to me that, that even if Ron doesn't, I think at some point I'm going to have to go back and like, I know in the first yeah, season we've missed <laughs> Marco Polo. That sounded mm -hmm. like a promising one. Uh, so I, yeah. I, I might at some point, maybe I'll do my own little, uh, my own little special episode that's just <laughs> me rambling about uh, the photo reconstructions. Oh, and, and yeah, and maybe we can do a bonus episode. And, and for the record, I have obviously no issue with people watching the reconstructions. I just don't think the, you know, we're trying to be kind of a consumer recommendation sure. thing. And I don't I think the average person wants to watch still photographs. Yeah. Um, it's, I think that's perfectly fair. Okay. Now this is a little weird, you know, favorite, least favorite companion. Now, I, I mean, I've got to exclude Ian and Barbara because obviously there are favorites here. So we only have two others, <laughs> which is Stephen and Vicky. And I know where Guy falls, but why don't you talk about. <laughs> well, I'd say at the moment. I prefer Steven, but I am starting to warm up to Vicky. I was, I was real down on her for a while. And I, I think part of that was because I resented her for not being Susan, but, uh, uh, I'm warming up to her, but, but at the moment, uh, I still like Steven a little bit more. Yeah. What do you think, Toby? I can't choose. I love them all. I love all of the regulars <laughs> of, 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 of this season. I think Maureen O'Brien is delightful as Vicky. I think she's got a lovely light comic touch. She's a terrific actress. Um, and I think Peter Purvis, 
you know, me growing up knowing Peter Purvis as a right, Peter right. presenter, you know, children's television presenter, seeing him do the dramatic turns that he does uh, as Stephen. I mean, he carries the series next year, as you'll discover quite often. Um, I think he's brilliant. And, and especially as he's introduced as a, as a ludicrous comic turn that he pulls off with a lot of verve. Um, I, 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 I've, I'm a great admirer of both. I love all of the regulars hmm. from this period of the show. They make me very Right. Uh, I'll side on the Peter side. Also, I don't, um, guy, I don't remember if we talked about Blue Peter. It was a hugely influential show in England, which was a kind of, I don't know, what would you describe it? It was sort of a variety show. Uh, it's a sort of, it's almost a magazine program for, for kids. It would, yeah, you, the, the presenters would, would, you know, they'd, they, they'd go and sort of do, um, they'd go and investigate, you know, how something worked from a, from an oil rig to, um, you know, a museum or something like that, but they'd also show you how to build a toy Tracy Island out of sticky back plastic right. and cardboard. Yeah. Um, they'd then have an elephant in the studio or, or, right. or somebody making music in the studio. So it was, it was sort of very BBC, very hmm. educational, but, but always with, uh, a, a, a sort of a, a slight sense of humor to it as well. I mean, that, that was dependent on the presenters, um, you know, that each generation has their favorite doctors or whatever, mm. have their favorite uh, uh, Blue Peter presenters, but very much a, a sort of iconic program for, for, for the development of children. Mm. Right. And it was a kid's program, but it, it was also pretty in-depth. Like, I was very impressed when they were taking off on the Doctor Who episode on the Romans. Um, they did a very in-depth uh, recreation of a Roman meal. Um, that was quite impressive. Yep. Um, so they, you know, and then, and then guy, the other weird thing I think for a lot of people in Britain is that once Peter Purvis left Dr. Who, he became a presenter on blue Peter. So most people knew him as a presenter on blue Peter, not as an actor on Dr. Who. Hmm, um, okay. And then he carried on presenting, he went to do crafts, which is the dog show. And, uh, and I think he did the darts as well. So he, he was, I was shocked to find that he'd been an actor. In Doctor Who, as I started to learn about the history of Doctor Who, because he was very much a presenter by then. And I think he's a really good actor, Peter Burns. Very good. All right, so now we have best companion departure moment, which is basically Susan versus Barbara and Ian. I mean, it doesn't have to be versus. I don't know how to, but, you know, I just can't escape the speech. I think the speech is amazing, so I have to go with Susan for me. But guys, the new guy, do you have a, do you have a comparison between them? Well, I liked seeing Ian and Barbara's joyful return to London. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Susan leaving is just too painful to think about. So I'm going to say <laughs> Ian and Barbara. <laughs> you have any opinion, Toby? Yeah, for me, I think it's Ian and Barbara. It's such a seismic moment. Yeah. Uh, and it ha and it manages to do both things. It makes you very sad. I think Arthur's reaction is lovely. And the fact that he's sort of a bit grumpy with them, but. They call them silly old fuss right. pots, which is heartbreaking. <laughs> but then you have that lovely photo montage. So you get the, the, you get both sides of the coin. And I just love those two. Uh, oh, yeah. And there was some I think reality you know, there too, right? I mean, Hartnell is an actor. So I know when Carolyn Ford left, he was like, look, we're actors. You take the job. You don't, you take whatever you can get, right? You don't leave. So I don't think he understood leaving a successful venture. Right. No. No, um, uh, but of course, he, you know, he was, he was near the end of his career. You know, they still had other things they wanted to do. So you can see those, 
those different pools as well, but it would, it would have left him very vulnerable. Uh, it's heartbreaking, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and it actually makes the, you know, it makes you forgiving of the rest of the chase as well, in a way. That <laughs> yeah, it sort of all true. pulls itself together in the end and you go, you know, is it, it, actually, this is where this is what we're building up to. Right. And I, I, I perhaps should mention also that when Susan left, I didn't know when she was going to leave, but we had, we had discussed that at some point she was going to leave. So I knew it was coming somewhere sooner or later. With Ian and Barbara, that just completely came out of the blue for me. I had no idea they were leaving. So that was that was a little more of a shocker than the other one was. Yep. Uh, so we have best doctor moment. Um, I mean, for me, it is that first episode of the Space Museum where he says, we have arrived. I, I just, to me, that is just an amazing line. Um, mm-hmm. Guy, do you have any thoughts on that? Or do you? Um... Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a good line. I mean, when he when he says it, you uh, you know what he means, but you don't know what he means. <laughs> yeah, you don't know all the implications of it. So, I mean, yeah, it, it, that's a cool moment. Uh, I don't know. I uh, I would probably go for something more uh, something more mirthful. I mean, I know there are a lot of places where he just uh, he really got into his his cackling. <laughs> you know, I. I uh, uh, there were a lot of those moments, so probably, probably it would be one of those, but I can't name a specific one. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cackling. Okay. That's it. And I assume, I mean, Toby, I assume he was adding that. I mean, that wasn't the script, was it? When he would do that? Or? No, I think that's, that's all part of his characterization. Uh, one we did talk about is actually, it's the beginning of the rescue when he, when he asked Susan to go and check something and then he remembers yeah. that she's not yeah. there anymore mm, yeah. uh, and that's that's rather hard. in fact i might choose that as my because yeah, okay. it's just it's just a tiny moment to money and i think he's great at the funnies but it's when he breaks your heart that uh, yeah no oh, that's really that is absolutely a good one and we talked about it in the episode so last question how does this compare to season one so especially guy as as the new person and again you know if you think about it in terms of uh worth watching would you recommend someone start with season one or season two or what what's your thinking there oh i i think i'd say start with season one i mean you've got a lot of neat stuff i mean looking back at your list of titles an unearthly child i think you'd have to watch that just to see how it all kicks off then you got the daleks Mm -hmm. uh i liked the edge of destruction i think if you see it for the first time now some people might find it suspenseful others might <laughs> but uh but i i found it very interesting on the first watching and then uh the aztecs had, of course had tlatoxel who is still the standout he, villain he's a uh, toby he's our official podcast uh best villain of the first season oh love him john Ringham <laughs> okay. is, a, is a wonderful actor wonderful actor and uh and you've also got the reign of terror then which was uh and the censorites had some fun moments although yeah. they did turn out to be kind of duds as a as a warlike terrifying <laughs> species they weren't really any of that um but uh yeah the first season i think you definitely mm-hmm. want to see uh yeah, this this season was fun too uh but but season one i think really would kick it off right yeah i gotta say though i think i don't know just Looking at them, I feel like season two, like they knew more what they were doing. It was so much more ambitious, even with things like mm-hmm. Dalek Invasion. They could not have done Dalek Invasion of Earth in the first season. They couldn't mm-hmm. have done the Time Meddler in the first season. I, so 
I feel like just as a, like, oh, in a way, this is the, to me, the first real Doctor Who season. Of course you can't escape Unearthly Child and, you know, seeing the Daleks come up and everything, but, but I feel like it's uh, just a little more refined. I don't know. So where are you, Toby? I, w- I would definitely um, advocate people start from, from the beginning. I don't think you can get to season two without season one, but I think season two is obviously bolder, more confident in that, and having, you know, worked out what they're doing, they then try and make it more interesting by, you know, we'll bring the Daleks back and it'll be contemporary. Right. You know, let's have a story that's all aliens. Okay, let's bring the Daleks back again, but let's have the chasing through time <laughs> and space where each episode's a headline. Let's do a story where there's something to do with time and it's a time track. Let's bring back one of the, well, let's bring in one of the Doctor's own people. Let's do a historical, but let's make it a farce and a comedy. So that, you know, that having, but you can only do that if you've established a template already, if you like. Yeah. So I think it's a natural progression and it's bold and it's experimental and it, and it shows the, the sheer breadth of, and, and, and scope of what's possible with Doctor Who. As I say, the only things I really sort of, that, that don't work for me is, is, is when it, when either the ambition, they, they can't quite pull it off. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that mm-hmm. or on the occasional sort of tonal misjudgment, which I think is particularly the case with the chase, but actually you enjoy the chase on its own terms right. and it's right. fine. Yeah. Uh, but I, 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 I think you cannot have season two without season right. one to sort of yep. react against, if you like. But I love the both for different reasons. Okay. Well, um, thanks so much, Toby, for mm-hmm. having this discussion with us. And I think this is kind of a great way I to end the it. season because it really lets us re, you know, just go back and rethink all the things we've been watching over the last few months and kind of um, crystallize it. So that's great. Yeah, I'm sure I've contradicted. Like if I went back and listened to those podcasts, uh, I'm sure I've said I like things that back then I didn't and vice versa, you know, because memory will soften some edges and sharpen others and so forth. But still, I feel good about what I said today. So I'm standing <laughs> by it till I forget it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the beauty of it. All this stuff bears uh, revisiting and reappraising. Oh, yeah. that's, that's part of the fun of it. Right. Well, thank you so much. And next up, we're going to be watching the William Hartnell movie, The Mouse That Roared. So. Yeah. Oh, what fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and the, uh, the book that Ron mentioned earlier, it's called Running Through Corridors. Yep. Is that it? There's actually mm. what, two or three volumes now. I forget. There's three, two, two volumes okay. so far. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry, two volumes so far. 60s and 70s. Yeah. yeah. Good deal. But I've probably changed my opinion from what I wrote then. <laughs> uh, so don't hold me to any of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, see you soon. Okay. Take care.